HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour live here at beautiful Feast Portland. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager at Heritage Radio Network. And we are broadcasting live today from the podcast lounge presented by our friends at La Crusade. Um, I'm really excited to jump into our next interview. But before we get started, I want to thank our other partners for making our coverage today possible. Um, so special thanks to Travel Portland, Salt and Straw, and the Julia Child Foundation for gastronomy and the culinary arts. We're so happy to be here. So I want to introduce you to my guest, Reem Cassis, who is a food writer visiting from Philadelphia, another East Coaster. Hi, Reem. Hi, Hannah. How's your day going so far? It's great. I mean, the weather's amazing. The food's amazing. Can't complain about anything. I know. We were just talking about as, um, as, as East Coasters that visiting the West Coast, we're like, wait a minute. It's really nice here. Why are we on the East Coast again? <laughs> Everyone's so friendly. <laughs> um, so Reem um, is a, a prolific food writer who got amazing acclaim from her very first cookbook, The Palestinian Table. Um, so tell me a little bit about how your life shifted. You were working in NGOs. You did not have a a food writing background. Um, So I I believe you said that you wrote this book or you started it while you were on maternity leave from your job. Tell me about how you made that decision to start writing um, and how you honed your, your voice as a food writer without much experience. I mean, I always loved writing. I've always loved food, but I also felt like the kitchen was a very stereotypical place that I did not want to end up in, especially as a Middle Eastern woman. So I left home at 17. I went to the U.S. I did my undergrad in economics and international studies. I went straight on to do my MBA. I started working in consulting after. And I wasn't very happy doing that. But it took, I think, the birth of my first daughter to really realize that I wanted to shift 
because part of me panicked when she was born about a whole host of things, but one of it was this feeling that she's not going to have that same sense of attachment to her culture, to her roots, to who she is as a Palestinian. And one of the ways I thought of preserving that was just compiling her family recipes and stories. And I think once I saw those coming together, I had this idea. I thought, yes, these are my family's recipes. These are my family's story. But taken together as a whole, they're the story of every Palestinian family. And I thought that was a narrative worth sharing with the world. Now, as you mentioned, I had no background in writing. I had no social media. I didn't even have an Instagram account when I started out. So I was like, okay, what do I do? And I fell back, I guess, on what I had learned, my experience in business. And I wrote a 100-page proposal for what was ultimately a 250-page book. And I guess from there, it, you know, it, I got an agent and I got a publisher and the book came out. But writing is something that I've always done, maybe not food writing. So that's where the voice that you were asking about, like, how did it come through? I was just very honest in what I was writing. I didn't feel the need to portray a specific persona. I just said what was coming out from the heart. And I think that resonated a lot with readers. And how did becoming a parent change your relationship with food and how food like connects you with your history especially you know living away from where you're born um I'd love to hear about yeah what what sort of shifted for you I think I used to look down at food I used to look I mean uh, growing up I always complained I don't like this food I don't like that food why are we cooking why are we this like I should be a career woman I never want to go into the kitchen And I think once I left home, I started to feel that food is a way for you to stay connected to the people you love. It's also a way to hold on to memories that mean a lot to you. And I was thinking, you know, when my daughter gets older, there's a lot of things that I experienced as a child that she will never, ever know. Like, she will probably never go and pick olives the way I did. And she will never go and forage in the valleys for dandelion greens and things that when I was doing them, I was like, eh, this is nothing. But once I left, I felt that it was so special. And I think that shift in perspective made me realize food is powerful. There is a story to tell. And this way, they will always have a piece of home with them wherever they are in the world. And who um, taught you how to cook in your family? So I learned a lot from my mother and my grandmothers. I wouldn't say they taught me because most of the time they were shooing me out of the kitchen. (laughs) I was like, you go study. That's what you're supposed to do. We'll cook. But every time my mother left the kitchen, I would like sneak in there and try to experiment. And then I remember when I got to university and I started having to cook for myself, sometimes I would call her and I would ask so many questions that this was long before FaceTime and Skype. And she often said, it's cheaper for me to fly out and cook for you than it is for me to keep taking your long distance calls and answering your questions. But everything I learned was from her and from my grandmothers and my aunts. So for listeners who might not have been lucky enough to get their hands on your book just yet, um, are there any like maybe two or three specific recipes that you feel really encapsulate um, the story of Palestinian cuisine? I think there's a few recipes that are in the celebrations chapter that I put at the end which are very quintessential Palestinian meals because if you look at Palestine it's you know the entire concept of nation states is relatively new so the Levant shared a lot of dishes so hummus everyone eats it Lebanese Syrians Palestinians etc but there are a few dishes that are very specific to Palestine such as maftoul ma'lube which is the upside down rice with eggplants imsakhan um, as well which is the tabun bread with onions and chicken so those are dishes that really encapsulate the Palestinian kitchen They're not the easiest recipes. That's why we shoved everything into one chapter, which is called Celebrations, i.e. it's hard. Do it when you have time. But they're very traditional recipes. I love that. 
Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, I know that you and Mike Salamanov, another amazing Philadelphia-based chef, um, uh, have collaborated. And I think it's really just beautiful and refreshing to see an Israeli chef and a Palestinian chef come together in the kitchen and you know share commonalities of flavor. So tell me a little bit about your friendship and, and how that originated. So in 2008, when I was in graduate school, uh, that's when Zahav opened up and I heard about it and I went there and I tried it out and there was a dish of frike, which is this fire roasted grain. And like I said, I was nostalgic, I missed home. I tasted that dish and it tasted exactly like the one that my mother made. So yes, that made me happy, but I was also very frustrated. I'm like, why is the best Palestinian dish that I've eaten since coming to the U.S. at an Israeli restaurant? So 10 years later, I'm back in Philadelphia unexpectedly. My books come out, and I send it to him with a short note in which I mention that story. And he reached out, and he said, hey, let's meet. So we did, and we hit it off. You know, our kids are the same age. They became very good friends. And I think, you know, you hear a lot about the tensions between, forget the political side, but even just in the culinary side of, you know, you're appropriating my food, you're taking this and calling it yours, and that's a much deeper issue way past the time we have here. But I think what's interesting and really what's helped our friendship blossom is there's this respect and recognition of, I am making, I as Mike Salmav, I'm making Israeli food, but I also realize that the origin of these dishes, a lot of it is from the indigenous Palestinian population. And I think having that sense of respect and understanding is what has allowed this friendship to become what it is today. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so do you have any places in Philadelphia or in the Northeast um, where you go to get good, authentic Palestinian food? Or just, uh, is that at home? <laughs> it's just at home. It's funny, because whenever like I'm in a taxi and I meet, I don't know, an Indian driver or a Thai, I'm like, where's the best Indian place? They're like, we eat it at home. We don't go out to eat it. And I feel it's the same. Yeah. So most of it is at home. Nice. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you've been up to here at Feast. Um, what events are you excited about? Who are you excited to meet? Give me, give me the Rimkasi's uh, Feast Guide. So um, our, the main event that I'm doing is called Vegetables, a love story. And we're featuring, I, I think Middle Eastern cuisine in general is very heavily focused on vegetables and grains. So I love that that's the event I'm taking part in because you get to showcase these things that are often relegated to side dishes or appetizers and show how they can be the star of the show. So that event I'm doing later. Um, I had an interview with Dana Cowan this morning, and that was a highlight. It was a lot of fun. She's also at Heritage Radio Network. Yes, yes. You can keep an eye out for that in your Speaking Broadly feeds wherever you listen to podcasts coming soon. It'll be fabulous, I'm sure. Um, have you had a chance to... Um, test out any exciting Portland restaurants? Oh my god, I feel like all we've done since we got here is, is eat. <laughs> I've lost track of the names of the restaurants we've been to but we went to Pak Pak yesterday which was amazing. We just went to a torta place called Brera. We're supposed to go to Tusk tonight. It's literally been just overeating. I think I'm going to need to do a bit of a cleanse when I get back home. Maybe Absolutely. fast for a couple of days. Yeah, you really have to be strategic at food festivals, as I'm sure everyone in our audience is, is aware. Everyone is tasting delicious things. Is how can you? Or I'm trying try to pace everything. myself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, no, we had Megan Sanchez from Guero on earlier this oh, you morning. Did? That's so cool. um, yeah, it, it was it was a really great conversation. Kind of hearing about how she moved from food truck to brick and mortar restaurant. Yeah. Um, going back to kind of your again, like your relationship with your history and family and food. Um, now that you do have children, and now that your career is more food focused um, are you making a point to teach your children how to cook and how to get their hands dirty in the kitchen 
Absolutely, and they love the cooking part. They don't like the eating part, which is so ironic. What? Given what yeah, they're pretty. Well, my younger one eats. My older one is very picky. So I, the irony is not lost on me, I know. But she does like to help out in the kitchen. So she loves helping me to roll out dough and to like fold things and shape cookies and whatnot. So she's into that, not into eating it so much, but we're getting there. I'm working on it. Excellent. And um, can we expect another cookbook coming I am. Soon? I'm actually working on another cookbook with Fiden as well. It's slated for a 2021 publication. And... It's taking, so the Palestinian table was very much a personal narrative in which we explore Palestinian cuisine through my family's recipes and history, but this one steps back a bit. It takes a wider lens and it wants to showcase modern Middle Eastern cuisine, obviously heavily focused on the Levant because just that's what I'm familiar with. But in order to do this book, I've been doing a lot of research about the history of food. So I trace a lot of dishes back to their origins and show how with cross-cultural integration and intersection, food becomes what it is today and how it changes. Wow, that sounds really exciting. It is. It's a lot more research-based than the first one, but it's been fascinating to learn about all these things. Can you um, give us a teaser about any um, fascinating historical discoveries that you've made as you've been researching this book? So the most recent one was I'm doing this recipe from Halabiya, which is the milk pudding. And in the Palestinian table, I call it, this is the Palestinian version of panna cotta. But while researching it, I actually discovered that panna cotta and blancneige, the French desserts, which are milk puddings, are actually adopted from the Arabs. So the Moors in Spain, and then in the 10th century cook, an Arab 10th century cookbook, it was the first mention of milk being thickened with starch. And then from there, through the Moors, it made its way into Spain, from Spain into France. And it's just, it's so fascinating to see. It's kind of, it keeps going back and forth. So here I was before doing all this research thinking, yeah, we're doing the same thing as the Italians. Then I come and I realize, oh, they actually learned it from us. Food is the most fascinating lens to look at human history it, through. It's unreal how it's, much you learn. And, and I feel like even though, you know, um, I might not have known that, like yeah. you can, again, you, you see repeated dishes or flavor combinations or textures. You also look at a lot of, for example, take a taco, which is meat and bread or something inside a bread. But then you look at other cultures across the world and everyone has this, their version of it. We have the shawarma sandwich. You go to Japan and they have the buns. You go to different parts of, in, you know, in India, you have the roti rolls. And it's just fascinating how similar concepts are seen everywhere across the world. We different methods of execution, but the ideas are similar. Um, and you mentioned that it's a focus on modern um, Middle Eastern cuisine. And I'm curious, um, so, you know, we're looking back at the history, but what sort of shifts are you seeing in, like, the contemporary restaurant scene or the way that people are cooking in the region? I think you're seeing a lot of intersection with Western cultures and Far Eastern cultures. So, uh, you know, for example, one of the recipes in the book is for a tahina cheesecake. So cheesecake is definitely not something you would ever associate with Middle Eastern cuisine. Tahina is a very typical Middle Eastern ingredient. And then you combine the two and you come up with something that's quite spectacular. And... Again, can you really call it Middle Eastern? Can you call it New York? I, I don't know where it falls, but it's definitely, it's the spirit of the Middle East that's running through it, but it is very much a case of cultural integration. So, I love that. That reminds me, um, one of uh, a dear friend of HRN's is the food writer Priya Krishna. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And she's incredible. I think she's been on maybe all of the shows on the <laughs> network. Um, yeah, I but, love her book. Indeed. Yeah, she's yeah. An inc such an incredible writer, but I, I really love hearing her kind of talk about, like, 
you know, my, my recipes are not always going to be traditional Indian recipes. They're also like influenced by growing up in Texas and how my parents adapted traditional Indian recipes to, um, you know, fit in with how people are eating in Texas. So there were like roti burritos right. and stuff like I mean, that. It's also a function of what ingredients you yeah. can find in your lifestyle. Yeah. I don't have six hours to dedicate every day to rolling grape leaves and doing God knows what. It's So you have to improvise and change things. And sometimes you come up with stuff that's very delicious, different from the original version, but equally good. Absolutely. Well, we are running out of time, but I want to thank Reem Cassis. Um, and thank you to everyone for tuning in to Heritage Radio Network's coverage of Feast Portland um, here in the HRN Podcast Lounge presented by La Crusade. Um, thanks again to La Crusade and our other supporters, Travel Portland, Salt and Straw, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Um, we will be back with more interviews from Feast Portland, so don't go away. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.